Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by Invoice to Go. I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the US, the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Today, we're speaking of Tali Matityahu, a serial entrepreneur and the founder of both the pet treat carrier TreatTeek and The Blink Date, an audio-only blind speed dating app. In this episode, Tali shares her personal journey and why it's never too late to pivot your career. She has some awesome advice and tips on how to bring both a consumer goods product and an app to market. She had no prior technical knowledge in the tech industry before launching Blink Date. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Tally. How are you today? Good. How are you? So good. And you're calling in from one of my favorite cities, I believe. Where Do you want to tell our listeners where you are? Yes, I'm in Los Angeles. Gorgeous. Oh. Yay! <laughs> um, so... Are you from... Are you? Why is it one of your favorite cities? I'm just curious. Wow. I'm moving there. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I owned a... Um, I owned a video production uh, consulting company, and mm-hmm. we had a studio there. Um, one of our videographers was there, so I was there all the time, like with projects um, for a period of my life. And then Got it. I always wanted to to move there um, at some point in my life, and that's happening now, finally, in a few months. Mm. So I'm excited. Are you moving? Like you already have your date. You're moving during this craziness um, this pandemic <laughs> I am so July 1st I will come back after maternity leave and be there which this episode will probably air around that time <laughs> so oh my yeah. goodness that's Perfect so exciting yeah. announcement because yeah. you're not originally from LA are you Tali no, I'm from New York, New Jersey, um, Philadelphia area, the well, tri-state New Jersey uh, area. Okay, well, you've got to be specific if you say <laughs> New York or New I Jersey. Know. Which exit on the turnpike did you grow up on, <laughs> off of? So, uh, yeah, I grew up in Jersey off exit five, but then I lived in New York for 11 years. So oh, wow. I don't know where to say I'm from anymore. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us your story of where you grew up and um, your career and how you became the woman you are today? Yeah, so uh, I grew up um, the child of two Israeli immigrants to the U.S., uh, and I um, was really blessed to go to an amazing public school and kind of throughout all of the, my schooling thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was determined. Those were, I had two options growing up, doctor or lawyer, doctor or lawyer. <laughs> so I chose law school, um, and I, throughout my youth, kind of prepared for that by participating in all sorts of things. In undergrad, I knew I was going to law school. And uh, yeah, I went to law school and after graduating lasted for about a year and a half before realizing it wasn't for me. Um, and so, no, Fair I, enough. Just, <laughs> I, I think actually it's been a huge growing opportunity and learning opportunity for me. And it's something yeah. that now I love telling people, you know, when you're unhappy in a career, you should just you should pivot and you should um, try something new because life is too short to spend it on something you don't love. Yeah. Don't uh, any, in any <laughs> area of your life. Exactly. Like, yes. I don't think be it's scared very to true. pivot. Yeah. So many people can just sit 
in a job that they hate for years yeah. and complain about it. This is what I don't get is like, why, how do you have the energy to complain about something and then not change it? Like, just, I, just I think change. the fear, the fear is greater. People are scared mm. that, you know, whatever they choose next, they'll dislike too, or maybe they'll lose some of their salary and is it worth it? You did know, you that feel that, paralyzing. Did you feel that fear when you were making that decision? Oh, absolutely. I was scared I was making the wrong choice that, you know, I'd be losing half my salary and I hate with the new thing that I was going to be doing. Mm. Uh, and I think what I realized from that is, you know, even if I didn't like what I was doing next, I can always go to something else after that. And there was no reason I had to be stuck in one path. Yeah. You know, it's hard to switch paths because you have to find somebody willing to give you that chance, but it's certainly possible. And you just got to get over that fear and take the leap. Yeah. Good advice. It's so hard, yeah. especially when the cost of living just continues to rise and our, you know, our yes. American wages at least, but a lot of wages around the world continue to stagnate. And so you're like, okay, I can barely make it now. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, what do I, how would I make it as a consultant when it's not even steady? So it's such a mental hurdle, I think, for people to get over to become self-employed. So it's really commendable. Mm. Absolutely. Especially, and I was living in New York at the time and I was like, can I really afford to take such a huge pay cut and still pay my rent and still enjoy the lifestyle that I've been living with my prior job? And I think that's true all over the U.S. Like the rent prices have been going up, but salaries haven't necessarily gone up. Um, I was just listening about like to, to this thing about how the poverty line hasn't changed in decades, but obviously the cost of living has. Um, so yeah. it's, it's an interesting time to try to take a leap. It's definitely scary. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you like? What kind of was the final thing? You know, like, was there one moment where you're like, OK, that's it. Enough is enough. I'm not doing this anymore. Like, do you have any memories like that? I think for me, it was one Friday evening when I was like asked to work after having nothing to do all day during the workday. And mm. I am Jewish. I don't, I'm not observant in a strict sense, but for me, Friday evenings, that's mm. like the, the Shabbat. I would have dinner with my family. It's very cultural. Yeah. Mm. And it was just a very upsetting thing to be like, told to work after having nothing to do all day. It just felt yeah. like this super inefficient, frustrating culture and expectation. And I, for me, it was just like, this isn't the lifestyle that I want long-term. No. I also didn't enjoy the work. So it wasn't like, you know, I'm throwing myself into this and I'm passionate about it. And so, you know, I'll get past this sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, and so yeah. it just, I realized at that point that I didn't want to be doing that for the rest of my life. So, yeah. So what happened then? What, what did you want to do? What was it like the thing that you thought you could jump into? <laughs> I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I explored all sorts of avenues. I really love all sorts of things. So I love travel. And so I tried to explore opportunities at travel companies. I knew I liked um, legal operations, which is what I ended up in because I mm -hmm. did it pre prior to law school. So I explored opportunities there. Uh, and I just tried to see like, where would I like to land? I looked at marketing jobs too, because I, you know, spent a year or so doing like um, Instagram stuff for my dogs and really enjoyed doing that. That was sort of like a creative outlet. Yeah. And so I really explored lots of different opportunities and oftentimes hit the wall of you are overqualified because you're a lawyer and you are underqualified because you did not do any of this sort of work in a professional capacity anywhere. Mm. Um, and so it was a really hard process to find something new, but I got, I think really lucky in finding somebody who thought a little bit outside the box, who gave me a chance. And I ended up in legal operations, that middle, middle one that I was telling you about. Mm, yeah. And that is, um, that was at Netflix, right? Uh, first at Datadog. And then I continued on to Netflix and that same kind of career path. Yeah. Cool. What was it like working there? Yeah. Cause they've got a notorious HR, um, 
policy and um, the way of hiring and treating their staff that is commendable. Did you have a good experience? I there? loved it. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible company, and I love their culture. I think you know, like any company, they have it. They have its challenges, and sure, you might be a cog in the wheel in some form. But I think the uh, stunning colleagues motto that they go by, or you know, may not be motto, but the, it, the people I worked with were all truly incredible, and the pace was so, it was rejuvenating in so many ways. It was energizing. It was exhausting, but it was also energizing. Yeah. And I just really loved how they lived by this like freedom and responsibility culture um, where, you know, you're the expert in your space. They give you the freedom to do your work. You mm-hmm. have the responsibility so you can, you know, do it on whatever hours you want. It was really, it, it's a really incredible place to work. Yeah. Isn't it, there's something else to that though. They have like this kind of sink or swim thing. Like they give you all this freedom, but then they expect high performance. Mm-hmm. And then if you're sinking, they're just kind of like, okay, you're sinking. (laughs) That's what I've heard. (laughs) Is that true? I I think it's probably true, but I don't think it's any more true than any other company. I think they're just more transparent about it. I think, you know, people get fired at companies all the time. They just don't, they're not very open about it. They don't tell the teams why somebody got fired or what, you know, they don't they don't share it publicly that they have this, this approach. And so the person just goes off into the night and you never hear about them again. Mm -hmm. And I've been at companies that do that. That Mm -hmm. just, you know, somebody just disappears one day and you're like, I don't understand. They were, they were here yesterday. I never heard anything and now they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think Netflix is just, is just more upfront about it. And I, I never feared for my job. I, you know, maybe there are people who, who, um, let that make them more anxious. But for me, it was just like, you do your job and you get it done. And yeah, there's yeah. no reason to fear any more than anywhere else. What I found really inspiring about Netflix is, um, so I read the the HR deck that Reed Hastings put together and he's spoken about it on podcasts many times. And I think this is, this is where he really inspired me as a business owner and how I want to hire. He said, the team isn't a family and you don't have family members as part of your workforce because when you think of a family, you never could like just cut, get rid of someone or cut them. That mm-hmm. is, that's not what you do with family. The The team at Netflix is like a high functioning sports team and everyone yeah. has to work together really well. And if you are not performing highly, then, then you'd like, don't make the team kind of thing. And I thought it was a really good way of putting it because a lot of companies are like, join the family, like come in our family. And they want it to be this like really friendly culture. But actually the way that Reed Hastings put it was that that is the wrong attitude because then you'll hang on to people who aren't really doing the best for your business and I think as a business owner that's quite good advice is that I think so too and I I, I, we would often say like we're a team not a family but I Mm -hmm. do think and it probably varies team by team I had an an incredible team that was super supportive and like truly cared about each other and so in some ways it still felt like a family because we just we were all working together so you know so well and we were such a a strong team and so I think you can have both but I think you like Reed was saying like you should hire to have a well-rounded team and at the end of the day that's the priority Mm -hmm. totally but that doesn't mean you you can't be empathetic and supportive of your team members outside especially with the pandemic as people you know had to work from home and parents had children that they had to you know figure out how to how to homeschool and all of that so it was definitely like a we are a team but we have to support each other as we go through all of these other things yeah you know also that culture of performance and transparency really promotes um fairness like equality you know Mm -hmm. because if Mm -hmm. it's like based on the way that you're performing rather than any other thing um you get some of that you avoid some of that unconscious gender bias Mm. because you've Mm -hmm. got like you know 
people can't say performance reviews, well, she's hard to work with or she has whatever, you know, they, it's like, they're based on, they accomplished this. Mm-hmm. This is what they're doing for the company, you know, <laughs> rather than like these subjective things that tend to hold women back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So Netflix is very kind of, it kind of appeals to the entrepreneur because you've got freedom <laughs> to like do your ideas. You've got all this, like, you've got the time you work on your own kind of time sorts and like what how you want to structure your day which I think is something that really appeals to a lot of people that want to start businesses um mm-hmm. but you se- seem quite entrepreneurial anyway obviously we'll we'll, we'll touch on blink date mm-hmm. very soon but you also founded another company so do you want to tell us about Treat Teak? <laughs> yes so I started Treat Teak actually while I was still at the law firm I want to say in 2017 mm-hmm. Um, and I created Treatique on my own and I used it for many years without having a name for it because one of our dogs is super reactive. And every time we turned a corner in New York and he'd see a trigger, whether it was a skateboard or an intact male dog or just a child moving around erratically, he would just, he would lose it. And so Aww. the only thing that we could really work on with him is like trying to get him to focus on us or, yeah. you know, giving him like a, and we would need to, you know, use treats to get his attention or reward him for the good behavior. And so we always had to have treats on us. And I, found that, you know, the, the treat bags that were on the market were just bulky or uncomfortable or hard to open with one hand when you're, you know, trying to juggle your crazy dog on the, with the other. <laughs> and so I, I created a treat teak really to solve my own problem of needing treats at all times that were easy, easily accessible. And so after years of kind of creating my own and, and using it on my own, I was like, I, I kind of want to try manufacturing these and selling them. And so it took me about two years to prototype, get it manufactured and finally have them ready to sell. Uh, and so I think it was around November, 2019 that I got the shipment from the manufacturer and I created all these plans between like November and February of like, this is how I'm going to go to local stores. Let me make my list of local stores, um, to try to get into retail locations. And then the pandemic hit and all of that went out the window. So right now they're just available to, to buy online. Um, and you know, I, I still really, we, we have, we use them every day on our walks. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's, it's, really interesting to go into the kind of textile manufacturing space. There's so many yeah. moving pieces and it's kind of intimidating to be honest. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Tell So you, you, you know, product design isn't something that you studied. Like how, how did you get that process together of, of designing these bags? How, how did you even know what would work for a kind of one handed opening bag style? Cause I'm just looking at it now and now it all completely <laughs> makes sense. It's like a kind of like pyramid shaped pouch with a flap mm-hmm. that is stuck down with some Velcro. So you could just, I imagine flick it with your thumb and then it, it just opens up and then has a clip that goes onto the lead. So it looks like yep. it's, it's a simple design, but it's also like really solving a problem. How did you come up yeah. with that? With no training. Trial and error. <laughs> um, so I just, I started creating my own. And like, at first we didn't have like the, the body, the stiff kind of structure so that mm-hmm. when you opened it, you, you kind of had the rummage or like the bag would collapse in on itself, which I didn't want. I also didn't want treats to fall out of the side. So, you know, I had to have structure enough to, to keep things in. I didn't want nosy snoots to be able to get in without a human. So the Velcro <laughs> had to be secure while still being able to be opened by a human with one hand. And I, I think like for the Velcro, you know, I'd use ones with draw strings and I'd use ones with buttons and I used ones with all sorts of mechanisms that 
when you're in New York City in the winter, like I said, with one hand, drawstrings are surprisingly hard to open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just a lot of kind of trial and error and learning from other products. And so I created my prototypes on my own using like Ziploc baggies as the inner liner because I also wanted it to be easy to clean. Um, nice. And I would sew them and every so often we would lose them because, you know, if some something would happen or, you know, the quality wasn't high enough and something would break or what have you. And I would just get so sad because I'd be like, okay, well now I have to make another one, but I would always iterate and it would be a chance to kind of be like, well, I didn't love this exact piece of the design before. So I'm mm. going to try, you know, instead of using cloth, I'll use, now I'm using like an elastic to clip the bag to the carabiner. Nice. Um, and once I, once I done, had done a bunch of prototypes, I found someone in New York who, you know, just took on small projects now and then, and he made me a bunch of prototypes uh, until we finally got it right. Awesome. And then, then you had something to send off for more like mass production. Exactly. So, so yeah. I sent that to, um, I actually use this kind of middle company uh, in China that Mm -hmm. you tell them your idea, you tell them what you need, and they go and find factories for you that could create your product. And then those, you know, I think I had three or five factories, uh, three to five, and they sent me samples, I ruled some of them out, and then I kind of narrowed it down from there. And so without that, to be honest, I have no idea how I would have been able to get these manufactured. I'd love to be able to do in the U.S., but the cost is just so much Too higher. High. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So one day, maybe you know, when things go back to normal and I'm able to, you know, sell some more of these, I think I would love to be able to, you know, mac- manufacture them in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, like manufacturing them in China as somebody who doesn't speak Chinese would have been really hard. So this yeah. middle company <laughs> structure worked really well. Yeah. And what was your experience of that? Like, did you find it hard to find them? And were there any kind of language barriers? or or tips you can share because this is something I see a lot in our Facebook group um, the Female Founders Network is people asking Mm -hmm. um, how to get stuff made and um, if anyone has any contacts in in China and and how how it all works like from the language barrier point of view was there something that you can advise on like how to like over communicate or did you have like a briefing (laughs) template what what did that process really look like? So in terms of finding this company that was like the middle company, I heard about them on a podcast, actually. They're called that is amazing. Um, Guided Imports <laughs> for anyone who wants to now go research it like I did. Nice. Uh, and they, I think it was an American who moved to China who started the company. And so uh, the language barrier, at least from a company perspective, like I, he employs, I'm sure, folks who, who speak English as a second language, but um, the language barrier wasn't as much of an issue because they're, they're, the whole idea was that they were bridging the divide between folks who want to manufacture in China and folks who are outside of China. Um, And so they, and they had a whole system to do this. And so they had all the forms and asked all the questions that were necessary for the different types of um, products that they would be able to, you know, find um, manufacturers for. So in the case of something like textiles, they're like, okay, well, we need, no, we need to look at manufacturers who create bags of some sort, whether it's purses or suitcases. Um, obviously mine is a very, very small version, um, but that's how they kind of said, okay, well, this is, these are the factories that do that. And the, this is the information those factories would need in order to do it. And mm-hmm. um, I, I remember also I created like very detailed uh, images and designs with measurements and explaining what, you know, not just the material I used, but the reason I was using the material. So nice. that inner lining wasn't just an inner lining. It was an inner lining with the purpose of retaining the shape of the bag. Yeah. And so just trying to really provide all of the detail and the purpose behind each piece of the structure. 
That's such good advice because then when they've got that understanding, it's not. It's like you say, it's not just to like look pretty so they could just put whatever in in there as mm-hmm. a lining. It's actually like got this purpose that is cl- so clearly communicated. Huh. That's mm-hmm. that's so good to know. Um, what was the name of the com- the podcast again? Uh, it was on. I believe it was on how I built this. Is oh, where yeah. I heard that. It was uh, at the one. end of the episode. So he does uh, uh, how you built this little segment for two, three minutes. And oh, so yeah. the founder of Guided Imports came on and shared. And this was, it had to have been three, four years ago because I, I built, I you know, started Treatique so many years ago now. Uh, so it's an older episode, yeah, but yeah. it's out there. That's one of my favorites. And now, okay, so yeah. now let's move on to Blink Day and how you founded that and how you made your way to LA as well. Yeah, so I, I moved to LA for the job at Netflix really mm-hmm. I don't think any other reason. And we thought, you know, it'd be really fun to explore SoCal. Sadly, the pandemic has made that a little bit harder. Um, but it's it's nice actually to be able to enjoy the sunshine while sitting at home all day. So at least there's that. Um, but yeah, that's how I, I made my way out here. And uh, in terms of, of starting Blink, I actually, it was about a year ago now that I was sort of contemplating, like I loved my job at Netflix and I loved what I was doing in legal operations, but it's such a niche space that I realized there wasn't going to be a ton of room for professional growth. And so I started assessing, well, what about my job do I love? And it was really the technology piece and, Mm -hmm. you know, finding the, the tech that solved the problems and then optimizing it. And so from there, I was like, well, that's really similar to product management. And I've been product adjacent for four years now in this legal ops space. So I wanted to transition to product management. And it's really hard to do that without product management on your resume, uh, which is a little chicken and the egg problem. And so I decided I'm just going to build a product of my own. And I've had this <laughs> idea for Blank for eight years. Let's let's throw myself into making it happen. Wow. And what was the idea? Tell us about how it all works. Uh, so what was, how, how Blink works? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea behind Blink is to allow people to connect uh, without looks-based assumptions clouding their judgment about whether or not they have a connection with someone. Mm-hmm. And so the way that it works is you sign up for the app, just like you would for any other dating app. You put in your name, your age, where you're located, your sexuality, and what you're interested in. Um, but we don't ask the questions about race or ethnicity or you know education level or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we ask a few lifestyle questions, just like, do you smoke? Do you drink? Um, do you do drugs? Just because we want to make sure folks are aligned on those things. Things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but once you sign up, you put in you put in your availability, and we match you with somebody who fits your criteria for a ten minute audio only speed date. And you go on your date, and after your date, just like when you get out of an Uber or a Lyft, you rate your ride. You're you're going to evaluate your date and let us know how it went. Um, and because we know love isn't blind, we have an additional component called glances, yeah. where you see a single photo of the person you may or may not have spoken to. I know this is a little confusing potentially. Um, And you let us know if you'd be interested in connecting with that person, but it doesn't have a name. You don't know if you've had a date with them. It's really just meant to kind of blindly gauge whether or not you'd be interested in a conversation. And so if you match on both of those things, then you have a match. This is such a cool concept and it's such a different um, way of doing it than the other dating apps on the market, especially with like not even knowing if that person that you've seen is who you've spoken to. How do you, um, (laughs) how do people then like take it a step further? Like if I've had a really good chat with someone and then I'm like, oh, I really enjoyed that conversation. I want to speak to them again. Like, can you like go back around? Can you arrange to meet up? Like what's the, the journey to from blink date to real date? 
Yeah. So if you, so we want to make sure that it's mutual. So if both parties enjoy the day, then you're able to continue messaging an app until you're ready to take it offline. Cause we don't want to share folks information until they're ready to, to share it themselves. Mm-hmm. We are thinking about ways to optimize that post date match experience, because I think you're right. Like we don't want to just say, okay, great. You match now go, you know, figure out your own stuff. So we're, we're trying to figure out um, ways to help folks reconnect after they've had a great conversation. And that's something that we're exploring as we, you know, work with folks and talk to them about how, how it goes after that audio date. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But you're, so this is an app, but you're obviously, you're, your background's in legal, you've done some product design, but you're not a technical <laughs> person. So how did you no, actually get this off the ground? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Where did you look? Like, where did you find someone? We to, should have to all this? gone to developer school. Yeah. All of us. I know, right? <laughs> no matter what other education we have. <laughs> uh, if only. Um, and so I think actually in terms of what I contemplated when I wanted to get this off the ground, there were three options, I think. There's either the option to go to school and or like try to learn on your own how to code. And some people manage to do that and it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. But sadly, I knew that I didn't have the time or bandwidth to do that while working a full-time job. Um, the second option is to find somebody local, somebody in my case in the U.S. Who, who could build the app. And the third option is to find somebody outside the U.S., someone offshore um, who could develop the app. And the you know option one being off the table because I didn't have the bandwidth, I had two options, one of which in the United States, as with Treat Teak and Manufacturing, was just financially infeasible for me. Yeah. Um, it costs three to five times as much to develop an app, I think, in, in even more potentially depending um, on who you're working with to develop in the United States. Uh, And so what I ended up doing is I just sort of, I talked to everyone and anyone that I could. I talked to engineering friends from work. I talked to friends, friends, engineering friends. Um, I just tried to connect to anyone that I could to talk about, this is my idea. What would it require to, you know, get done? Um, How much do you think it would cost if I developed it here in the U.S. versus offshore? And just started gathering information from all of these people. Yeah. And then eventually I sort of, and I I would ask, like, do you know anyone who's willing to work on this? For the most part, all of those answers were like, no, not really. Um, But you could talk to this person. And so I just kept going down this trail of conversations. And eventually I actually found the person that I ended up working with in a Slack workspace. Um, That was an LA design and dev workspace. That's just, you know, for people in LA and those areas, I posted about wanting to build an app and somebody replied and said, I have a dev shop, you know, let's connect. And mm-hmm. so I chatted with him and, and the model worked, worked really well because he was based in Los Angeles and is sort of our product project manager, but he has a team. Um, he has teams all over actually. And he's worked with them over time. And so he has yeah. these ongoing relationships with these teams and he manages them in building all of these kind of apps or the projects that he gets engaged for. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So th- like that, that is a really good like story of how you got there and everyone has their own thing. And, and I think one of the hardest things when you're non-technical is, is feeling like someone could like have you on with what? Mm-hmm. they're saying and you just you just don't know as a non-technical person so having someone that you can like ask for advice and and have a like a sort of advisory friend as well is mm-hmm. is, is definitely a good thing and having all of those conversations even with people who weren't you know, interested in taking on a side project, mm. I was able to learn so much about the questions that I should ask, yeah. the type of information that was relevant. And so those conversations might not have come to anything in terms of actually getting the app built, but they taught me so much yes. um, because I'm not technical and just didn't even know what to be thinking about. So, so definitely, valuable. I would definitely recommend talk to as many people as you can. It yeah. can't hurt. Yeah. That's, that's again, such good advice, Tartley. Um, I completely agree with that. 
Um, so, okay, so you've you've got it built. This was um, about a year ago as well. Um, and now you're trying to get it out there and, and kind of marketing it. What's been your main kind of marketing strategy um, to acquire people to come and try this out? Because I'm guessing, like, with many um, new businesses and startups, like, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. Like, you need people on there to get people to sign up. <laughs> yes. but. People always sign up, but there's no one on there, and ah. So, yes. <laughs> how are you treating this quite kind of common challenge for new businesses? Yeah, so we're we're right on the cusp of launching in Los Angeles. So we're mm-hmm. in an alpha right now, and so we're kind of gearing up for this just just as we're speaking. Um, and I think the particularly challenging thing in the dating space is that you actually can't engage in any paid marketing. Um, on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, because uh, they have restrictions around dating ads because they want to make sure that it's, you know, there's no lewd content or inappropriate materials and they won't give you that approval until they can review the app um, and make sure that it complies with those policies. And so we've been in this weird place where we can't do paid marketing. And so we've been entirely engaging in it. It's just all organic marketing, which um, in our case is, you know, blog posts, um, engaging on social media, which I think is actually born so much more fruit than I ever thought would. Like yeah, I've, yeah. I've met people who want to chat, who share the idea with their friends, who say, this is amazing. I want to like showcase it on this blog that I do. Um, and so the, the social media thing has been, it takes so much time, but it's actually been really fruitful. Mm. Um, we've launched our podcast date in the blank, um, so that people can see what the idea of audio only speed dates are. Um, and then the people who are on it, go and share it with their friends. And so there are a lot of ways to engage in organic marketing that although time consuming can be really, really fruitful. Mm. Um, and they also, I think what we've discovered is it's created a really engaged audience and an engaged kind of following. Whereas with paid marketing, while we still will have to do it, I don't think we'd have that same level of engagement and passion in those people. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, you know, even after we start engaging in paid marketing, we're definitely going to continue our organic marketing efforts. Yeah. You've got a really cool Instagram, actually, like the kind of content you're doing is like a lot of memes, like really getting people with humor, <laughs> which is awesome. Like that that's what you want to follow. You want to, you want to follow pages that make you laugh or inspire you. And it's a really cool and like quite clever way of getting people to find out about you and have that brand awareness. Sounds like it's thank going you. Well. I appreciate you saying that because it, it takes a lot of effort to put it all together. So thank you. Yeah, no, I know. We're like Nat and I are marketers ourselves and we work a lot in content <laughs> marketing. So I feel the pain. <laughs> it's also like the never ending beast that's always hungry for more and more. Like you just never get a break. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> okay, so what's next? You're you've you're in the alpha stage, you're about to release in LA. Have you oh gosh, I mean, I think normally you'd what would be what wanting to organize like parties or an event or something like a single event what are you doing with the pandemic and how are you really going to launch this in LA yeah so we're I don't know that we figured that out fully quite yet but we're trying to determine um kind of that threshold of uh, waitlist users that we want to launch to um we can either launch now and kind of sort of try to funnel people into the same time slots for their dates so that folks don't show up and, you know, not have enough um, engagement with the app to, to make it feel valuable to them. Mm-hmm. Or we can wait a little bit longer and kind of build up that wait list once we can do paid marketing before officially launching. And so we're trying mm-hmm. to, to navigate those waters now, um, but we're hoping to be able to do a kind of general release by summertime in Los Angeles. Uh, so do a beta group and then by summertime launch more generally here. Awesome. And then from there, we'll look towards New York 
York, our next urban mark, um, urban target, and then kind of expand geographically from there. Cool. I've just like had this really random but weird idea that might work. <laughs> but <laughs> tell, me, like, tell me. So you know how like it's obviously audio only. So you can't really see like who you're speaking to because you're just talking to them. Could you host a socially distant dating event where you go and you're kind of in like all these booths? So you've got social distancing and then people can just speak through this booth and can't see each other. And then it's kind of like so actually, app, real, real life. <laughs> so actually, I mean, the the idea for Blink was actually born of wanting to do a live event like that, but actually in, in darkness where you can't see anything oh, cool. um, because it was the, the idea came from eating at a blackout restaurant and talking to other people at our table and kind of connecting with them in such a deep way um, without being able to see them. And so I, my dream is to be able to have live events one day down the line when it's safe. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to think of, you know, it could still be COVID friendly. Um and how could we execute that sooner? I don't know. That's something we could definitely explore. Yeah. Oh, my God. Cool. I've never been to one of those blackout restaurants. But, yeah, that's, I can see how that would have inspired because you just – it's kind of like – yeah, it's like, it sounds like a really cool concept. Have you been to one, Nat? Mm, no. Yeah. I, no. I really I really want to try it. it. <laughs> if you ever get the chance, you absolutely should. It's It was really not to – no pun intended, but really eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I do also think that the, the name Blink Date is like a little <laughs> funny as well, <laughs> seeing as you can't see anyone. But um, awesome. Okay, well, Eyes open and closed, yeah. right? Ah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so clever. Well, wow. It was so interesting to chat with you, Tali. I think this has been really, really um, just full of useful tips and also really exciting for you that you're about to launch. And we just wish you all the best. Um, if someone wants to find out more or um, join the waitlist, where can they find you? Yeah, so our website is www.theblinkdate.com and we're on social media at uh, The Blink Date on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our podcast is at Date in a Blink nice. uh, if folks want to check that out too. Um, and yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun to chat with you. Awesome. You too. Thank you for coming on and um, good luck. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by invoice to go We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.